Hey, you're listening to Can I Say That? with Brenna and Austin Blaine. Hey, you guys, welcome to the first podcast of 2021. It probably doesn't really even feel like a new year, especially with the riots that took place at the Capitol last week. I've just been thinking, wow, so much of the anxiety that has developed in 2020 has just followed us into this year. And so I started thinking about that and specifically about what happened at the Capitol. And I just felt like God was just sharing some things with me that I felt maybe might be of encouragement for you guys. And so... Oftentimes, when things of great anxiety happen in our world, our first response is to get on social media and see what is my pastor saying about it? What is my church saying about it? What is my favorite author or favorite speaker saying about it? Do their opinions match my opinions? And are they saying anything of worth, of a value, of encouragement that I believe is valid for what has just taken place? And while I don't believe that is wrong, I do believe that as followers of Christ, we're called to a different first response. And that's because I believe that as followers of Christ, we are called to be the non-anxious presence of Christ in this world. And that is a difficult job, but it's not an impossible job because we have the Holy Spirit. And so when things of anxiety happen in our world, I want to encourage not just you, but myself as well, because I I really struggle with going to social media first, that we wouldn't go to social media first and we wouldn't look to someone else in our life for an answer, but that we would first meet with God in prayer, that we would say, God, this is where my heart is. This is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm struggling with. What do you think about this? What can I surrender? What fears can I surrender? And then a second thing I think is that maybe you're someone who feels the pressure of giving a response. Maybe you're a leader, a pastor, whatever it may be. Maybe you have a podcast. I'm not sure. And maybe you feel like, wow, people are probably wondering why I haven't said anything about this. And the second response is that I feel like it's important for us to meditate on scripture and commune with God about our thoughts and feelings and process with him before we step out into our social platforms and operate out of a place of obligation or pressure or performance, whatever that may be. All right, now diving into today's episode. Today we have Zachariah Paulson, who is a student at Multnomah University, as well as a church intern who is sharing his thoughts and his research on the prosperity gospel. And while there are a lot of different opinions and nuances when it comes to should Christians call out false teachers and prosperity gospel teachers, and if so, how should they do that? I found this quote from John Piper that I thought was really helpful and encouraging to those who feel like it's important to call these people out. How to do that out of a place of love and out of a place of clarity for your audience whoever that may be when you are calling these people out he says this when you do name a false teacher it's best to do it in a setting where you do more than name drop so don't just name drop you explain the error you give reasons for rejecting it you communicate complexities you set a tone of longing for truth and love you're not just slinging mud. So if you don't have the time to explain why someone is a false teacher, if you don't have the ability in 140 characters to explain why someone's a false teacher, that might not be the right setting. 
John Piper goes on to say this. He says, the last thing I would say is to let your teaching be so powerful in clarifying the greatness and the beauty and the worth of God's truth that your people will smell error before it infects their lives. The shape of error is always changing. You can't preach enough negative sermons to stay ahead of it. And you do not have to. The best protection against the darkness of error is the light of truth. Okay, so maybe this is a really broad question, but we have to start here. What is the prosperity gospel and what are the different versions of it? Some people talk about health, some people talk about wealth and riches, and some people talk about fame. I think that's exactly where we need to start. First, I'll, I'll start with like the basic kind of definition of it. The prosperity gospel, it's known as the health and wealth gospel. It's known as the name it, claim it, word of faith, new apostolic reformation. Like there's tons of names for it. So if you're hearing any of those, that's kind of same camp basically. But obviously it's most well known as the prosperity gospel. And it's a perversion of the gospel of Jesus that claims that God rewards and increases in faith with increases in health, wealth, happiness, fame, etc. The prosperity gospel is like built on five pillars that I don't have time to get into. But the, these five pillars are basically a distorted view of God, an elevation of the mind over matter, an exalted view of mankind, a focus on health and wealth, and then the last one is an unorthodox view on salvation. So those are kind of the five pillars. That's kind of what it is, just base level. And there's lots of things that people can read about this. At the end, I'll give some recommendations on resources and books and different things that I've studied. With that, I think that it's important to, in order to understand the prosperity gospel, it's helpful to understand five theological errors of the movement. Granted, I would say that there are probably more than five theological errors that the prosperity gospel has, but these are kind of the five that stand out and that I've taken from a book by, I believe his name is David Jones. He's got a book called Health, Wealth, and Happiness. So the first one is the Abrahamic covenant is a means to material entitlement. So what this means is the prosperity gospel teaches that the primary purpose of the Abrahamic covenant was for God to bless Abraham materially. Then they go on to make the point that if people, if we are spiritual children of Abraham, then they're deserving of that same inheritance and that same blessing in materials that is promised to Abraham. And usually when teachers and preachers are using this, they go straight to Galatians 3.14 to claim their support, which refers to the blessings of Abraham that might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. And it's interesting, however, that in their appeals to Galatians 3.14, the prosperity teachers ignore the second half of the verse, which reads that we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit through faith. And so this is the first error. Is they're, they're thinking that the Abrahamic covenant is this material blessing when that's not what it is. The second theological error is Jesus' atonement extends to the sin of, of material poverty. And so this is basically when we think about the cross, when we think about Jesus' death and resurrection, often in American Christianity and basically any Christianity, you would hear that Jesus' death on the cross covered and paid for our sin and our shame, brought us from death to life, all these things. But what they believe is that his atonement heals us and covers us from material poverty. So you're, if you're broke, if you have a small, like a small house or you have a bad car or whatever, that the atonement of Christ actually pays for that. And then if that isn't the case, if you're, you still have these things, then 
there's something wrong, which we'll get into later. Third theological error is Christians give in order to gain material compensation from God. And this is pretty self-explanatory. I'm sure that you've people have heard this before, that if you want something for God, you are to give to God, to the Lord's work. This is what prosperity preachers always say, like give to the Lord's anointed, give to the Lord's work, and then you will be blessed materially with either things like goods, fame, or they go as far as staying like health as well. Costi Hinn, he's the nephew of Benny Hinn, very prominent faith healer in the prosperity gospel movement. And in his book where he has denounced prosperity, the prosperity gospel and all these things, he says that one of the catchphrases that Benny Hinn had when he was working for his uncle back in the day when he was a teenager was no money, no miracle. And so if you want to get this compensation from God, if you want health, wealth, fame, you have to give to the Lord's anointed. You have to give to the Lord's work. The fourth one, faith is self-generated spiritual force that leads to prosperity. So according to the prosperity gospel, faith is not God-given, ordained, granted. It's none of these things. But what it is, it's the spiritual force from humanity. It's directed at God, believing that this force leads to some prosperous life, that their faith like triggers this blessing from God that is going to give them health, wealth, and a prosperous life. And then the fifth one is kind of similar to the kind of the last two as well, but it's they believe prayer is a tool to force God to grant prosperity. So basically they believe that if you want to be prosperous, you got to ask God and he's going to give that to you, that he's going to bless you because you asked and he's going to grant you these things because that's, that's what prayer is. Prayer is not this communication between God, intimacy with God. It's a tool to force God to grant you the prosperous life that you're wanting. And so those are those are basically the five big errors that uh, the prosperity gospel has. And obviously they're extremely damaging and we'll get into that a little bit as well. But these are the most prominent ones, I would say. Another thing I would say important to talk about, um, especially because it's a huge deal on how the prosperity gospel came to be is the history of it. There's a lot of pieces to it. There was a lot of things influenced by it. And I'll try to kind of condense it as best as I can into what influenced the prosperity gospel into what it is today. But I do want to recommend a book that goes into a complete depth uh, called Bless, uh, History of American Prosperity Gospel by Kate Ballard. She's a, a scholar and a, a professor at Duke University. And so if you want to dive more into the history of it and how it came to where it is today, I would read that. But basically, the prosperity gospel is built upon this old Christian heresy known as the New Thought Movement. This was an ideology that gained popularity in the late 19th and 20th, early 20th century. And so basically, the prosperity gospel movement consists of the same ideas. They're just repackaged, rebranded with new leaders, new places, new technology, and a slightly altered message. The whole method of New Thought Movement was to promote interest in, in the practice of true philosophy and way of life and happiness, to show that through right thinking, one's loftiest ideals may be brought into this realization and to advance intelligent and systematic treatment of disease by spiritual and mental methods. So it was all about this, my mind is the most powerful thing and through my the way I think and the way I act and all these things you can bring about your present reality it's almost like what we would see now as the name it claim it gospel and so this was led by a bunch of different leaders but the most prominent I would say the guy that 
brought it to spiritual maturity was a guy named Phineas Quimby. Um, he was an inventor. He was a healer. And he's the one who kind of made this new thought movement a big deal. The reason that he got into the movement, and this is a fascinating story, is he believed he had to own personal experience. So one day, Phineas, he had tuberculosis and he set out to heal his tuberculosis with some fresh air. But his carriage went awry, and this was a long time ago, so he had to run alongside his horse, like chasing after his horse. Afterwards, he thought better than before. He believed that there was some sort of relief for his symptoms that he was facing. Kate Ballard, that author, she says, Surprisingly, the run offered relief of his symptoms, which signaled Quimby that the mind could overcome any disease. The new thought movement is marked by a false and distorted view of God. And so she's saying that what he had experienced was he was running and trying to heal himself through just his mind. And he thought that he experienced this and this actually is what happened. And so that's why he came about to believe that the new thought movement was true. And so then he revolutionized it and, and went on to do a lot of teaching and all, all, the, all that type of stuff. So the prosperity gospel was influenced by new thought. But it's also influenced by Pentecostalism, which I want to say right now, Pentecostalism, if you are a Pentecostal, you are not like a heretic. You're not in the prosperity gospel movement. That's not the case. It's just the prosperity gospel has been influenced by Pentecostalism, and not all Pentecostals are bad at all. Um, it's also been influenced by Norman Vincent Peale and his book, The Power of Positive Thinking, which kind of correlates to this new thought idea. But I think the real rise of the prosperity gospel came with the rise in televangelism and Christian TV. And so there was a period in the like 1980s that like doubled the amount of people watching Christian TV. It was like 25 million people or something like that back then. And we see the rise that begins with a man named Kenneth Copeland. He's the one that influenced people like Benny Hinn, Joseph Prince, Joel Osteen, etc., but Copeland was greatly influenced by listening to the tapes of a man named Kenneth Hagin, who is considered to be the father of the modern prosperity gospel movement. And Kenneth Hagin was, he was the one who adapted teachings from a man named E.W. Kenyon. So as you can see, there's a lot of names, a lot of things that are influencing the prosperity gospel movement. There's a lot of pieces coming together. There's even teachings that Kenneth Hagin had, if you listen to his tapes, where he's completely plagiarizing this man named E.W. Kenyon, who was, at the time, he was like a charismatic Baptist who started preaching the prosperity gospel. And so with this rise of Christian TV, TBN, televangelism, all these things, the prosperity gospel started to become what it was today. Seriously, there's a lot more history that I could get into that's fascinating. But I think, um, like you said, you asked about the different versions. So I want to kind of transition into talking about that because there are different versions of the prosperity gospel. There's different churches, there's different preachers, ideas, and extremes of the prosperity gospel. This is the stuff that gets me most worried about the church because some of the prosperity preachers, some of them are very blunt, which is makes sense. And people think it's just silly or sounds ridiculous. But now there are more preachers that are appealing to even Bible-believing Christians. And this has to do with a number of factors. And so I tend to break it down into two different categories. I break it down into overt prosperity theology and covert prosperity theology. So let me take a second to define these. So overt, these are preachers and churches that are clearly obvious. These are the people that when you see them on Instagram, you see them on TV, you see their books, right? They're the people that 
you're like, wow, this is kind of crazy if you're a Bible-believing Christian. Obviously, there's a ton of people that believe this theology to be true, that these preachers and pastors are amazing. But this is Joel Osteen, this is Benny Hinn, Creflo Dollar, T.D. Jakes, Kenneth Copeland, Paula White, Joyce Meyer, and Todd White. These are the people that you'll see on TV, huge churches, popular books with their face on it. I think I was told by an old pastor friend that if you see a book with their face on it, you probably shouldn't read it when it regards Christianity, um, which I always thought was a funny, funny life advice. Going back to this, you see these quotes and these sermons and you read them and you're just appalled by them. These are the people that are almost laughable because it's like, okay, this is clearly not the gospel. This clearly is wrong and it it sticks out to you. Um, these are the preachers and the theology that is very blunt. But then you have covert prosperity gospel. These are typically the newer guys, the younger guys coming onto the scene that are gaining a lot, a lot of popularity. But not just among the prosperity gospel crowd, because they're gaining popularity too there, but they're gaining this popularity in just Bible-believing American evangelicals, Christians, people that follow Jesus wholeheartedly, believe scripture, all these things. And I say that they're covert because they're popular and their, their, their videos and their sermons are shared all over social media and people don't recognize them as a preacher that's preaching a false gospel or prosperity gospel or things like that. These are pastors and preachers like Stephen Furtick, Brian Houston, John Gray, Robert Madu, and I would say the, the fastest growing one right now is Michael Todd. He's from Transformation Church. He is blowing up on social media and becoming one of the most prominent word of faith preachers of our generation. And there's also people that as we get into like kind of the happiness aspect of the prosperity gospel movement, pastors that I'm not going to outright say that they are false teachers, but I know as I study, as I look into this, they, some of these pastors are considered to be a part of this movement. And I'll just watch, I'll share the names. And it's people like Levi Lusco, Carl Lentz, who obviously we know had a falling out recently. Some would say Judah Smith. Some would say Ritual Christian Jr. from Voo Church in Florida. Those guys, I'm not going to outright call them out and say these guys are false teachers. They're preaching a prosperity gospel. But in my research, I have seen them preach prosperity theology. And so that's something to be wary of. Out of these categories comes different types of prosperity theology. First, you have health, wealth, happiness. Typically, it's more the, the, the typical Joel Osteen, John Gray, T.D. Jakes, Joyce Meyer. These are the prosperity preachers that we see that of the huge churches. Like I said, the, the poster child is Joel Osteen, right? This is the, when you think prosperity gospel preaching, you think these guys, this, the typical health, wealth, and happiness. Let me listen to a Joel Osteen sermon where he tells me that I am beautiful. I am amazing. I am this. I am that. God wants you to be happy and healthy and wealthy, and that is his will for your life. The second category is the power gospel. This is the typically the, the faith healer movement. This is Christ plus miracles. These are people like Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn, Todd White. Those are kind of the main ones where they believe that you need miracles. You need signs and wonders that that is essential to the gospel. And I'm not here to argue like whether or not signs and wonders are active or whether those gifts are active still. That's not the point. The point is, is that in order to, for the gospel to be true, miracles have to be a part of it. Signs and wonders have 
to be a part of it. Speaking in tongues has to be evident for salvation. And they believe this because they believe something about Christ that is viewed as, as a heresy in the church. They believe that Christ emptied himself. This is about the doctrine of kenosis, of emptying, Philippians 2. They believe that Christ, when he came to earth, that as he became incarnate as man, he completely emptied his deity so that when he was on earth, he was not God. So they devalue the deity of Jesus and say that he was just simply a man, that this is all he was. And that in that, Kenneth Copeland says that any man could have done what Jesus did. And this isn't just referring to the miracles of Jesus, because that's what most of them would say is that because Jesus was a man, I can perform these miracles because I am like Christ. So I, it's my responsibility to have that same power. But what Kenneth Copeland takes it even further, he says that God told him this, that any man could have done what Jesus had done in regards to the cross, which is clearly heresy, clearly untrue. So he believes that any human being, any man could have been born and taken on the sin of the world. If they were in perfect relationship with the Father and they were living by the power of the Spirit, they could have done this. And so that's kind of the power gospel that believes that you need miracles. You need signs and wonders for salvation for to basically prove that the gospel is true. And then you have kind of the happiness camp, right? This is more of the self-help motivation, TED Talk gospel, whatever you want to call it. And this is where the covert version of the prosperity gospel comes in where these pastors are preaching health, wealth, and happiness, but they're masking it better than others. I don't know if this is on purpose, the way they preach, whatever it is, but this is people like Stephen Furtick, Michael Todd, Brian Houston, Todd White, I would say, comes into this camp as well. Some people say Levi Lesko, Carl Lentz, stuff like that, where they preach the prosperity gospel, but it's not all the time. I would be lying to you if I said that I haven't heard a Stephen Furtick message and agreed with what he was saying because not every single thing that he's said has been completely heresy or wrong or false. So they preach sometimes true messages, but there are prosperity preaching and teaching wiggled in and just in the cracks seemingly where people are then buying into this because they hear this great teaching. Like Stephen Furtick's a likable man and a very charismatic guy that's got a gift to preach. It's clear. But then he weaves in these little moments where it's untrue. It's the prosperity gospel. They also tend to preach this God loves you message, which is very true. Don't get me wrong. But they say, that's it. God loves you. That's it. You're amazing. God's crazy about you. And they neglect the side of God that has this perfect holy judgment and wrath, which is obviously a conversation for a different time. But this, these are the people that I find most dangerous in regards to the prosperity gospel. Because people love them. Like they're getting thousands and thousands of followers and views every single day. I see people that I know reposting their sermons. And then you you watch the sermon clip and it's got some truth in there. But then there's something in there that's just completely against scripture. And it's dangerous because that could lead you into a path like this unbiblical view of Christ, of the Bible, the gospel, etc. So that's my long answer to your your question there. So like you've already said, and we can probably both agree, a lot of prosperity gospel preachers are just like really phenomenal preachers. They're gifted at communicating, but that also can mean they're gifted at 
twisting the scriptures. And so what are some biblical examples that people use to promote the prosperity gospel and how do they misunderstand those verses? That's a that's a really good question. I think that's really helpful. I think it's helpful to to recognize the gifting that they have, which sounds really weird. It's helpful because if you listen to like I said Furtick, Michael Todd, Joel Osteen, like these guys are like gifted. Like they can teach and write a message and it's really well done. Like I've known people that will study how they how they just simply teach a message, not what the content, but just how they teach it because they're so good at it. And with being so good at it, you have the opportunity to take words, take phrases, take scripture and like you said twist it a little bit. And so I have a few different verses. Obviously, there's a lot that they use. Like I know Malachi 10.10 talks about bring the tithe into the storehouse. They talk about that one, like give to the Lord's anointed. Galatians 3.14, like I talked about earlier with Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant and having that be material blessings for us now today. Another one that's used is James 4.2, which says you do not have because you do not ask God. And this is used, I mean, if you just read that verse, you could take that out of context so easily and be like, well, yeah, that, clearly, because I don't have this because I don't ask God. So if I just ask God, then boom, I should get that. This is specifically used for the name it and claim it aspect of the prosperity gospel. That the reason you don't have wealth or health or this car or whatever thing is because you don't ask and you need to ask with enough faith and then you will receive it. It's like I could I could go on and on about how wrong this is, but here's the very quick answer because it's all you need is the next verse in scripture. James 4, 3. Verse 2 says, you do not have because you do not ask God. Verse 3 says, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. It's right there in the text. It's the next line down. And God communicates through James that you do not ask because you do not have because you don't ask. But when you ask, you're not receiving these things because you have the wrong motives. You have motives of selfishness, of pride, of fame, of wealth of health, whatever it is. Next one, anybody knows this one's on the list. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you a hope in a future. I will add though, God does have wonderful plans for our lives. He does, absolutely. He has plans for us that give us a hope, that give us a future. But if you look at scripture, the plans for our lives might not always be what they seem. The perfect plan for Stephen the martyr, was to be murdered while preaching the gospel faithfully. That was his wonderful plan. And so this is obviously one of the most misunderstood verses by Christians. And it's often used to promote, to promise good news, to suggest that God works every seemingly bad situation for our benefit and the not so distant future. But this verse is taken out of context because it's it's amidst Jeremiah's letter to the exiles in Babylon. And it would be 70 more years before they would return home. And so this verse is not a promise to Christians today who lose their jobs or experience heartbreak of any kind. It was a promise to the Israelites that God, in his own plan, in his sovereign will, would restore his people. John 14, 14, that's another one that's similar to, to James 4, 2. It says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it, right? And so this is misinterpreted again, saying that if you ask it in the name of Jesus, that will happen. If you ask for financial wealth, you pray for financial wealth, it will be brought about. Um, there's uh, a pastor, I don't remember what church, but it's Creflo Dollar. And he was going off on some rant and he was like, if I want to 
ask God for a $45 million plane, then you bet I'm going to do it and he will provide or something like that. And you have to recognize that Jesus said in Matthew 19, 24, that it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. That verse in James 4, 3, where it talks about you ask with the wrong motives. And so this isn't saying that if you just ask Jesus in the name of Jesus, that you're just going to be wealthy. Jesus's words in John 14, 14 are as a way of encouraging his disciples to spread the gospel of his kingdom. The verse before and after provide useful context. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Then the verse after says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 14, another one that's taken out of context very easily. And then the last one that I'll speak to is 2 Corinthians 8, 9. This is one that on face value, if you just read it and be like, that's it, then it would obviously promote the prosperity gospel. It says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Take that right there, boom. That promotes the prosperity gospel. If you don't look into it, you don't understand it in any way, shape, or form. Don't look in any context. They promote this verse to say that Jesus' sacrificial death affords us temporal wealth on earth that we will have this this richness here and there's even there's even preachers that would say that jesus if he was alive on earth right now today that he would not ride a donkey he'd be in a bentley or a rolls royce he would fly in a private jet he would wear designer clothes which is clearly blasphemy because we know that jesus didn't even have a place to lay his head and so what this really is saying is that when Paul says that Jesus was rich, he's referring to his status as a son of God. And him becoming poor was his voluntary act of stepping into humanity, stepping in humility to become and take on this second nature of man, fully God, fully man, the incarnation. So essentially, Paul is summarizing the gospel saying that, that Jesus, he became a curse. He became poor so that we could have sonship, daughtership, right? So we could be adopted by God. That's that richness that Paul is kind of speaking to here. And so that's just that's just some of the of the the verses that are taken out of context. Obviously there's there's a lot more. So you already mentioned Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, which I think a lot of people are thinking, well but it actually like a lot of translations use the word prosper, which is really interesting. And then I think about the verse John 10, 10, which is a little bit more general, but it it says that God came to give us an abundant life. And so what prosperity does God promise his followers? And how is that better than health and wealth and fame? God does promise us some form of prosperity. I know that's a very dirty word. He promises us a life of abundance. He promises us these riches that are talked about in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. One of the verses like you just mentioned, John 10, 10, right? The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came so that may, they may have life and have it abundantly. This abundance is so much better than the version of the prosperity gospel promises. God promises us a, a abundant life with him. James Montgomery Boyce, he's a pastor, theologian, has a really good quote on this. He says, the Greek word for abundance Perosis has a mathematical meaning and generally denotes a surplus. The abundant life is above all contended uh, the contended life in which our contentment is based upon the fact that God is equal to every emergency and is able to supply our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So the abundant life isn't some easy, comfortable, rich, healthy, happy, whatever life. Those things can be a part of it. Like you can be 
wealthy and happy and healthy and comfortable and follow Jesus faithfully. But the abundant life is about satisfaction and contentment in Jesus. Paul talks about it in Philippians 4, that he can be content in all things. He's, he's been brought high and been brought low, but he's learned the contentment found in Christ. And that same goes with that richness that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians, like we just talked about. This richness that we have been given as right standing with the Father, being able to become adopted into the family of God as sons and daughters is so much better than the prosperity that is here today that the prosperity gospel preaches that, oh, you need to be rich and happy and healthy and you need to have nice cars and have an amazing house and a beautiful wife, all these things. That what Jesus promises us is eternity. He promises us eternal relationship with him that is better than anything that we could ever even grasp with our minds. We can't fully grasp what eternity is going to be like. And that's what Jesus promises us. That's the richness that we get when we get Christ. And so God does promise prosperity. He promises us satisfaction in him, contentment in him. And there's so much more there, but I think that's what that's really what it is, is satisfaction and contentment in Christ and the riches of eternity with the Father forever. Something that I that to me is is so heartbreaking about prosperity gospel is that prosperity teachers are so good at making people believe that healing and success are a matter of personal faith. And so if someone's praying for financial help or if someone's praying for healing and it doesn't come, oftentimes it's like, hey, it's not God that's not good. It's just that you don't have enough faith. And so how does scripture combat this mm -hmm. idea? This kills me. Like you said, this this breaks my heart. This this like angers me in my in my soul. Um, just because they say that if you do not have enough faith, the reason that why you're not happy, your reason why your marriage is failing, the reason why whatever you're not wealthy or whatever it is, is because you do not have enough faith in God. And what it comes down to is a lack of theology or correct theology on suffering and also a lack of theology on faith. Because Hebrews 11.1, 1, we know now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not, not seen. And so their definition of faith is messed up. Like I said, they think it's this cosmic force that triggers God's blessings and you have to have enough of it and then you get the blessing. But I don't even know if that's exactly what they these preachers believe because they don't need to believe that at all. They don't have to believe that they need enough faith. They just have to promote that because they know that if they're promoting that and they're saying, you need more faith, you need to give in faith, you need to give $700 in faith, you need to yada, 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 then these people will give money to them and then they continue their ministry. And so, but like I said, it's a false view on faith. If we look at Hebrews 11.1, 1, it uh, shuts down this ideology that faith is this cosmic force. And then they have a lack of theology on suffering. And so you see, when we break it down, if suffering is happening, they say, it's your fault. You do not have enough faith in God. And that's why you are suffering. That's why you're not healthy, wealthy, happy. Make the list. If you had more faith, here come all the blessings. But scripture is very clear. And I could go a lot of places in scripture where that's not the case. John 16, 33 Jesus tells his disciples that you're gonna face troubles in your life. Not because you don't have faith, but because you're going to face troubles. Suffering comes in three ways. It comes by our own sin. So like us screwing up and messing up and falling short of the glory of God. 
It comes for Christ's sake. So you're suffering for the sake of Christ, for the glory of God. And then it comes just because we live in a broken world. And that's just inevitable. Like suffering is going to happen. And so it makes you think if suffering is happening because I don't have enough faith, not because of my sin, not because of it's for Christ or it's not because of the broken world. If it's because I do not have enough faith, that makes you think that the Apostle Paul had hardly any faith, that God must have hated the Apostle Paul because he was poor. He had sickness. He was shipwrecked twice, bitten by a snake, imprisoned, beaten, stoned. The man faced more suffering than hardly anybody that we see in scripture. He was constantly in this life of suffering, but he is one of the most faithful men to the gospel that we've ever seen. On the flip side, we know that every good and perfect gift comes from God the Father, not our crazy faith, as Michael Todd would say. And so when suffering comes, it's not because we don't have enough faith. It's because that's a part of our life. And scripture is clear that God does bless people according to his will, and he allows suffering. And God heals, not because people have faith. The story of the 10 lepers come to Jesus, want healed. Jesus heals them. Nine of them walk away. They didn't have faith in God. That wasn't about their faith. That was about God's sovereign will of healing. And so mind-blowing and heartbreaking thing that people would accept that, that in order to receive success, healing, and happiness, and wealth, that you have to have enough faith. And what that really does is promotes these prosperity preachers to keep on preaching what they're preaching and gaining more money because they promise something if you give them money. And so it, it breaks my heart. So we've already talked about how a lot of these teachers are gifted and I could get on Instagram right now and find probably two or three videos of prosperity preachers on my For You page or on my Explore page on Instagram. And so I'm just saying this because it's very possible. We have a, a large group of people who fall into different categories when it comes to faith, Christian faith, who listen to this show. And so maybe someone's listening today and heard you say a name that they went, oh my gosh, I've been listening to them for a long time and I've really liked what they said, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I messed up. How could I miss this? And so just before we end, I want to ask, what encouragement do you have for those who might have fallen into believing some of these falsehoods that are taught within the prosperity gospel? I have two things. First thing, you're not alone. Simply, you are not alone. You are not the only person to have been deceived into believing that the prosperity gospel is true. You're not stupid because of it. You're not an idiot because of it. You're not less valuable or worthless because of it. That's just simply not true. And if any Christian tells you that, I'm very deeply sorry. This happens to a lot of people. The prosperity gospel is huge. It is huge. It is all around the world. I, John Piper has like a sermon jam about the prosperity gospel. And he says that America's number one export is the prosperity gospel. And so the thing that we're putting out there the most, America's putting out into the world the most, is this false narrative of Christ. And so you're not the only one. There's millions of people that have been deceived by the leaders of this movement. So do not be discouraged. There is a chance that you could come, obviously, to the real gospel. Jesus is waiting with open arms. And with that being said, the second is the gospel. The real biblical gospel is enough. What Christ did on the cross, what he gave to us, what he when he gave us, you and me, mercy and grace and love and adoption, when he paid our penalty for sin, when he took away our shame, what he did was enough. 
like Romans Romans 5 8 while we were still sinners Christ died for us he did something for us that is completely all sufficient following Jesus is not going to make you wealthy it does not guarantee that you're going to be healthy. The gospel of Christ is not that in following him, everything in your life will go right, but that he is enough no matter what happens. And that's clear. In scripture, we see that, that, that Jesus is this all-sufficient Savior. So just know like you're not alone, the, and the gospel is enough. It is really enough. The riches in Christ are enough to fulfill every need of yours. He is altogether lovely and perfect and kind and gentle and slow to anger. And I could go on and on for hours about who God is and how good he is. And obviously it's not too late to turn to that. And I promise you that the prosperity gospel will not satisfy your longing. You will get the car, you'll, you'll become rich, famous, healthy, wealthy, all these things. And you'll find out that it's still not enough. That's because the only thing that is enough is Christ. And so if you want to dive more into this. There's a few resources that I just want to list off. The first is a few books. One's called Blessed, A History of the American Prosperity Gospel by Kate Bowler. One's called Health, Wealth, and Happiness by David Jones and, and Russell Woodbridge. One's called Prosperity, Seeking the True Gospel by, it's like by five different authors, Piper and Grudem are in there. Two books by Costi Hinn. First one is called God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel. The second one's, I believe, called Defining Deception. There are documentaries that you can watch. I will give a little caveat. They are, these documentaries are from the Reformed tradition, I would say. But nonetheless, I think they're helpful to watch. American Gospel Christ Alone, American Gospel Christ Crucified. And then Costi Hinn is, has a show on this something called AGTV. It's like this, I think, American Gospel TV, basically, um, where he wants to walk through people that have fallen into the prosperity gospel movement and walk with them on how to leave and how to get through that and all these different things. So just remember, you're not alone and the gospel is enough for you. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you want to learn more about Can I Say That? our guests on the show, or submit questions and participate in polls, please join us on Instagram at Can I Say That Show. We love interacting with our audience and hearing how this show has affected, changed, and challenged you in your own walk. So please join us.